I think we just lived through maybe the most amazing, spectacular, drama-filled Grand Slam of our lifetimes. I mean, it was just front to back incredible. You know, a lot of the time when, when a slam finishes, I feel a little sad because it's like, oh, it's over and like I don't have the, this thing to look forward to that I'm so engaged with. But now when I look back on it, I'm just like, this is everything I love about the sport. It ticked every box. Yeah, if the US Open was an organism, and I think it actually, it is an all, like the tournament's an organism. It was like a complex beast that really was born anew and just excelled at, at being a tournament. It won some big award of being a great tournament in the, in the heavens of where they give you awards for being a tournament or something. <laughs> yeah, this tournament did feel like a living organism in a way. It even started with potty training. You had all of these ongoing debates about players taking bathroom breaks, went on to feature all of these coming-of-age stories, teenagers unexpectedly breaking through, Emiratu Kanu winning her first slam at 18 years old. Uh, we had this major weather event, which somehow prevented matches from being played on a covered stadium, but also did nothing really to derail this undeniable tournament's progress. And in the end, we had one of the sport's greatest champions falling short of a nearly impossible achievement. The calendar Grand Slam, Novak Djokovic thwarted by his younger rival, Daniil Medvedev, but still winning somehow, finally capturing the heart of a fickle crowd. You know, it can feel like hyperbole at times, but I just enjoyed every minute of it, and it was truly special. What'd you think, Alex? Yeah, it was funny that before the tournament started, all the talk was about Roger Rafa not there, Serena's not here, first time all the big, big names aren't going to be here. And then as soon as it started, all that was out the window because it was just amazing. You know, even from the first day, the matches were incredible. There was that Murray Sitsipas match on the first day, which just sparked yep. it off. And everyone was just, everyone had forgotten about all their preconceived, like potentially letting themselves down about the tournament before the tournament had even started. And it was just off from the first moment. And it was just didn't, didn't stop delivering from that. It was amazing. Yeah. I remember even thinking in the second week, like there's no way it can kind of keep the level high. Like I think the, the Friday, um, the first Friday was particularly epic. There was all this amazing stuff and people were raving about it and how great the matches were. And it just, it just kept repeating, you yeah. know, I mean, it, it obviously, and it took all these different forms, you know, it wasn't just one note, but it was like a symphony of amazing tennis action. And just as, a, as somebody who like cares about the sport in this sort of abstract way, like I want people to, I want other people to care about it. I want to bring people in and share the love, you know, like even when I got back to work on Monday, um, this guy in the UK that I work with, Liam, he, he was like, Dave, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Emma Raducanu, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I saw, I actually saw her. I'm like the guy who's like, you know, I saw that band before it was cool. <laughs> um, you know, saw, saw her on her little court and my friend's kid wanted to get her autograph, but like couldn't, couldn't make it work. And yeah, but he was like, ah, like, you know, we watched the, the, the final and it was really amazing. And uh, we have to pay more attention to tennis now. I think that's, it's just like, totally heartwarming and and i don't know sort of validating in a way like that other people can see what what it is that we love about the sport so much that's great i love to hear that 
It's so good. Yeah, there's something about the the mental struggle, the, the, all the personalities, and when, when you throw them together into the soup that is a Grand Slam tournament, um, amazing things can happen. And this was the perfect storm, if you like, of all the amazing things happening at once. I kind of feel like Federer, Nadal, the Williams sisters, Dominic team not being there allowed for this rejuvenation to happen. And then on the women's side, you know, with Osaka and Barty losing early as well, it further just gave the spotlight to the young kids and to other less likely players. So much so that I was, I was like, there is no way the men's final can be any more exciting than Raducanu and Fernandez, the teenagers, in a in a final, which was which really delivered. But in some ways, it was it did it did work the men's final because although it was a straight sets loss for Djokovic, the emotion that we saw from Djokovic and him finally winning over the crowds, it was a really special moment of drama and redemption maybe mm-hmm. um, and it culminated with the most ridiculous fifa celebration from from medvedev like he did the dead fish celebration god what like that is that is crazy what a crazy end to the tournament yeah i was i was listening back to some old bits about medvedev you remember like when he was going on this rant about how the umpires were weirdos <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we got a, we got a lot of mileage out of that, and it was like, you know, the umpires were not the story, and Daniil was ultimately the weirdo. I mean, he's always been a weirdo, but it's oddly charming to me that you know, in his moment of greatest triumph, his final words and his final action on court are a deep cut reference to a video <laughs> game. <laughs> it's, I love it so much fun. Yeah, I love that. Very last thing. Only legends will understand what I did after the match is L2 plus left. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Daniil. Only legends will understand. <laughs> yeah, or people who can uh, Google on the internet. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the ones that understood right at the moment, that would, that would have been great for them. Did you, did anyone else know, know much FIFA combinations to, to decode that in the moment? No, I didn't. You play a little FIFA. Uh, I haven't played FIFA for a while, but I sort of want to get back into it now, actually. <laughs> I knew it was a video game reference, but I just, because I didn't know what he was doing when he celebrated. And then yeah. when he mentioned it during his post-match interview, I thought, um, oh, it's definitely a video game thing. I just don't know what it is. And I, I went like looking on Twitter and it's funny because like, you know, people who knew the legends who knew were like so excited and they just, you know, they're like, I love this guy, you know, just it. It was a fun, like, little crossover cultural moment, I thought. Yeah. You know, um, he originally conceived of doing that at Wimbledon. So um, he was going to do right. it if he won, but it would have been so much easier to do it on the grass court. Apparently, he injured himself <laughs> doing it on hard. Yeah, it, it, he committed to this act. I wonder if that was in his head as he was trying to serve out the match, because <laughs> he the first time he tried to serve out the match, he was up the double break in the third, and he failed to convert, you know, and the crowd was getting on him and really like pulling for a Novak comeback. And, you know, there was all this energy and, you know, he was clearly distracted. And I'm wondering if he was thinking like, right, when I win the final point, I have to, it's, it's also funny because he's like a person who decided 
in the last year or so that he doesn't really do celebrations like when he wins regular matches but, yeah uh, yeah apparently they're reserved for special circumstances yeah i like that let's talk about novak a bit because he was a uh, story throughout for many reasons and played a lot of really interesting compelling matches and some of the young men who were kind of showed themselves to be real up-and-comers rune brooksby uh, managed to challenge him. Uh, Zverev took him to five sets this time before falling. Yeah, all fell short in the end, um, which, you know, was was a little disappointing. But yeah, as Matt said, he he kind of won anyway because it was just impossible for the crowd to not appreciate what he did just to get to that point. Um, and yeah, it was really moving to to see his his emotions on display. I was reminded of when he lost the French Open final to Warinka and how the crowd also seemed to really embrace him in that moment. He showed his humanity. And I think people have trouble with him sometimes because he's, he's so dominant, you know, he just doesn't, he seems not human. He seems like a God. And yeah. Well, well how'd you feel about that, Alex? I know obviously you're, you're a big Novak fan. Devastated. I was devastated. Really. I, you know, I don't really feel, usually feel that sad or, or happy when people I like win or lose tournaments. But this time I've, I genuinely felt probably sad. I was, I was just, you know, I just, he came so close to get to that final match of that, of potentially the, the, the grand slam. And then the, you could just see towards, you know, towards the, end, the, the, the middle of the third set, he just, it just felt like he knew and he couldn't do anything about it. And I just started to feel really sad about it. I don't know. It was, and then they showed, I didn't see it live. But they showed him having a bit of a meltdown during the changeover, just crying into his towel. And that was just so upsetting to see. Yeah. I was just devastated. Yeah, he was he was fully sobbing. It was, yeah, it was really moving. Um, mm. He just, you just get a sense for, like, that's, a, that's an achievement. It, no matter how great, a, you know, a player is, he, he's accomplished almost everything in his career. And he's late in his career. He's 35 years old and he, he won three slams in a year, in a calendar year and had this amazing opportunity, got all the way to the final match to do something that hadn't been done in 50 years. And you know it mattered to him and to, to feel that, like he really sensed it palpably, but he, he looked like a, you know, he was, he, he was, he looked childlike. He was just completely torn asunder uh, mm-hmm. in that moment. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I appreciate him quite a bit i mean i you know i've had my ups and downs with novak but he's incredible i mean first of all i want to say sorry uh for you fans and novak because i mean we we all know what he was going for today and i just want to say that i mean anyway what as as you said what you accomplished uh, this year and throughout your career um, I never said this to anybody, but I'll say it right now. For me, you are the greatest uh, tennis player in the history. I also felt like he really, he really handled the whole thing with a ton of grace. He, yeah, you know, he was always, you know, complimentary to his opponents, and he won some points with me when he decided to defend Tsitsipas. It was another amazing match two guys going at it in such a big occasion. Alexander brought it tonight. You brought it. No bathroom breaks, no histrionics, just two of you going at it. 
How about a few words for Alexander and how close he's come yet again? There was one bathroom break. I did go to toilet. It was quick, was though. <laughs> Minute 45. I got to stand for Stefanos Tsitsipas. I don't think he's doing anything wrong. So I'll, I'll, I support him. I support him. Because <laughs> the rule is not clear. Of course, you can argue it's, uh, it's all relative. You know, everyone sees it differently. I think it's... Uh, we are completely off topic, but I got to say, because this was a hot topic last couple of weeks. So, you know, I think he didn't deserve that much uh, attacks that he was getting through in the media from everyone. So support to Stefanos. I didn't tell you guys about this, but like I, I was on the grounds when Steph was playing the match against Alcaraz and watching from the lawn in the, in the center of the grounds. I was there with Molly, my, my girlfriend, and she loves Tsitsipas. Uh, you know, Tsitsipas is basically our favorite player. and. He's popular generally or has been and nobody was rooting for him. Like he would win a point and it was just silence and I'm I'm like wow. clapping I'm the only person clapping anywhere and I'm like at one point I turn around I'm like really nobody and people start laughing. It was <laughs> I was like man like the fans are so fickle but it also it was it was all connected to that story and how oh, the, yeah. the media was just hyping it up like constantly talking about the toilet breaks the toilet breaks you know and it's like at some point it's like what about the play you know that that match against Alcaraz was incredible his match against Murray was incredible like yeah it was it was it was a little strange in the moment and I just I love that Novak was like you know this is kind of nonsense like let's just drop the topic yeah maybe he's taking a long time but the rule is ambiguous so how about we move on and talk about the good stuff what do you think Sipas was doing for 13 minutes in the bathroom the fact that so many players have sort of come out and agreed with Andy Murray that, like, although this is kind of within the rules, it's something that players don't really appreciate, or they don't feel like it's within the spirit of the game to spend that much time. You're not supposed to keep the other player waiting for that much time. And, and there's a general acceptance as well that you t- to change your full kit Shoes, socks, shorts, shirt, everything doesn't take that much time. And uh, going to the toilet as well, you know. Like, the only thing I could imagine that could take that much time is if you had a really bad diarrhea and you really needed to clean yourself up a lot and, um, you know, and it just kept coming out. your body and you needed to attend to that. Um, that could happen but I don't think it's not there's no sign of that happening it's not like he's sick and he's saying I'm uh, you know it's not a medical thing so what he's doing there I think is just taking time to set himself to write himself mentally um, there was that accusation that he was texting his father um, in the previous tournament Maybe he didn't do that this time because there was a lot of focus on that, but is he trying to go over tactics? Is he looking at something on his phone, notes that he's written to himself? Yeah, so um, so a couple bits of info on this. Patrick Mortaglu was on ESPN tonight and kind of defended him and said, you know, look, he's doing that to refocus. 
you know, maybe he is taking longer than he needs to, and maybe it doesn't feel good to the other opponent, but he's focused on himself and it's within the rules. So if you don't want it to happen, there needs to be a rule preventing it. I feel like this is where it starts to get into icky territory. Nobody wants to know about the icky territory. Yeah. The diarrhea, like they, you know, and then on the women's side, you know, you also have other hygiene concerns. And nobody wants to force a player back onto the court because they're having a, a bodily event, right? Like, no matter what it is, it, it's not really fair. I feel like it just falls in the realm of not sporting. Now, I'm going to read you a quote of, of another tennis player, another pro tennis player defending Tsitsipas today, and I'd like you to guess who it is. Okay? okay. All right. All right. I think it's ridiculous. I understand it's getting pressed because tennis is lame and tennis media sucks and they're terrible. It's hot and humid and for the media, the press that have never stepped foot on a tennis court in their life, have never been in the environment, couldn't last 30 minutes out in this humidity, in this heat. It's physical, our sport. My shoes are dripping. They're leaking sweat. To change or to go after, you know, two sets, we're drinking, we're hydrating a lot, we have to use the bathroom, change socks, shoes inserts in my shoes shorts shirts everything the whole nine yards hat it takes five six minutes i don't know Tsitsipas. i don't know his situation i doubt he's getting coached i highly doubt it today i couldn't even take my bag in to change i'm like guys my clothes and shoes are in here you can come in and stand with me if you want okay pretty a uh, pretty strong defense i mean with some unnecessary pot shots at the media um who do you think that was matt is he american Yes. Um, we could do this like 20 questions where you, you like can only ask me yes, no questions until you know who it is. Is he a Republican supporter? I don't know. Um, okay, well, that rules out Kisner and Sangren as well, probably. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, current player? Yes. Um, is it? It's not a Pelka, is it? It is Riley Opelka. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, he makes some good points. Like it's. <laughs> I agree. It's it's not. Um, there there is this kind of etiquette. There, I I feel like they've just like people have established this baseline. You know, you play as a junior. You play a lot of matches. Everyone's played at this level. Everyone's played heaps of tennis, and everyone knows how long they can kind of stretch keeping the opponent waiting. And but I think it's clear that Sidsipas has has just pushed that envelope a little too far. But then again, like how much he hasn't? It's sort of on the still, or maybe on the fringes. The way Opelka puts it, like it's a couple more minutes than maybe is necessary but only a couple more minutes like in the scheme of things like is how much how much is that yeah i thought it was really interesting i didn't hear the whole quote when they read part of it on the air earlier there's something Moritaglu also reinforced he's like steph doesn't have his phone with him he's trying to disconnect from social media and stuff like he leaves his phone behind like he's not texting his dad so he wasn't texting his dad in the previous tournament? He was not He was not texting his dad. What Riley is saying here is that, like, there's somebody watching the door. Like, he can't just go change or take a dump. There is a procedure. And so the fact that the media just ignores it, because they'd rather hype it up. They'd rather have this hype video about Steph's 
shits because it's just such a ridiculous story and like the ridiculous stuff is what's sticky and that's what gets people's attention and like i don't know i mean there were some great tennis these first few days and yet this is probably the number one story and now it, and in a way it almost overshadows what apparently was a great match i didn't get to catch it because i was on the plane while it was happening we really need uh streaming video on airplanes this is just getting a little ridiculous mm. uh, but anyway yeah, apparently it was a really great competitive match and Murray looked like he was totally in form and and people somebody was pointing out, maybe it was more Toglu, that like the big break that Steph took was after the fourth set, which Steph won. So who like whose momentum was he stealing at that point? You know, it's I, I think they're going to have to like add some kind of rule, some kind of time limit. And I do think like this definitely falls under the category of not sporting behavior. Yeah, so he really did become a, an enemy and you know like you know how Steph really cares like he cares about his image and he really wants to do well on the court and off the court I think that would have hurt him actually to be seen as the enemy yeah. you got to imagine that like that feeling that no one was on his side anymore would have really personally hurt him deep deeply and so for the number one player novak at you know at the he's at his best moment in the tournament when he's just won the semi-final he's made the final to think of steph to think of like going uh you know this guy's had a rough trot i'm gonna give him a shout out that was a really nice moment i, I totally agree yeah it did go too far the toilet story but it feels like this is the first time steph's had some serious pushback against all the liberties he takes during matches the, the amount of gamesmanship he does in matches because it's there he does do it but I, the toilet story went too far and he did he definitely did get vilified a bit too much but i think this is the first time he's really felt like oh people aren't okay with this like maybe after maybe i will uh get it together a little bit who knows yeah it'll be interesting i mean i, I imagine that the atp will create a rule about it you know yeah. just like some kind of time limit seems appropriate but, you know, he's, he's really kind of consistently defiant. Like, I, I agree, Matt. I think he was hurt by it. And I think he doesn't, he, he gets confused and saddened when the crowd isn't with him. You know, it's like, but he's, he, I think he's also trying to like show that resilience, you know, like I want people to love me, but if they don't, that's their choice. Um, but, you know, it's like more Taglu's, you know, coming out with public statements to defend him. And a lot of it seemed a little tone deaf. You could acknowledge, yeah, it's probably not fair. Like, I feel like I just never connected with him that it's pissing off the opponent. Um, but, you know, this is happening in other matches. Like, you know, TFO took a seven-minute break at some point, And at the end of the match, and like whoever he was playing, I was, oh, he was playing Rublev at the time. That was another great match I completely forgot about. TFO goes off to the bathroom. Rublev's like pacing around like a little pissed off because he's behind and he's struggling. And where the hell is TFO? And at the end of the match, like, I think it was again, Patrick McEnroe being like, you know, and we didn't have any like long bathroom breaks or whatever. It was like, yes, we did. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's just that the, the attention is just squarely on this one person. And, you know, I didn't think it was like terribly fair. But anyway, it's there are ups and downs, you know, Steph, I thought a really interesting angle of the Alcaraz match was it was the first time you had one of these new guys really taken down by an up-and-comer in a, in a match where it was like, oh, he's supposed to win it. Like, he was like the Federer when Tsitsipas beat him. He's like the Rafa when 
um, Shapovalov beat him. You know, it was like this real shocking moment that felt like it was, a, I mean, it's definitely a harbinger of, of things to come. And uh, it's a different role for him, you know, and he, he hasn't climbed the mountaintop entirely yet. So we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, it's good to see a new a few new players like Alcaraz coming up. Just on the um, bathroom break, though, like, have you heard the line that he heard that he learned the tactic from Novak? <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, they keep saying it. The, the Tsitsipas team keeps pushing that line. Mortoglu's done it. Tsitsipas <laughs> has done it. Tsitsipas' dad has done it. They, it's like the party line. It's just like he learned it from Novak in the, in the Roland Garros final. Yeah, so like... And that's um, so that's uh, accepting that okay, it is strategic, and other players have done it, like Novak um, has done it, and mm. you know that's that's fine. We're going to use it. We're going to use any edge that we can get. It's it's within the rules. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I and I totally get that behavior. I mean, these guys are competitors, playing for a ton of money and rankings points, and it's, it's this is their business. It's really serious, and they're gonna take the advantages where they can find them and so you know it's just it like falls into this gray area and it's not the first time we've ever talked about somebody taking a long break it's you know it's it's happened on the women's side for sure and yeah. you know it just it's, he, it's just like a hard thing to legislate yeah he just but the, i think the problem is that he just learned a new trick and he just did it every match as soon as he learned it he just, like <laughs> right. he's like i learned this trick and i'm gonna do it every single time i play tennis now until like and, and then he just blew it for himself and everyone like it's it sort of <laughs> yeah. reminds me of that. Sort of reminds me of that thing there where Agassi could pick. Was it John Borg sir? Boris Becker. Do you know that story? Boris Becker sir. Were you ready? Like yeah, Agassi learned and had to tell with the tongue. He could tell which direction the serve was going to go, but he would only use it when he really had to. Like so, it so it wouldn't become obvious. So he wouldn't give away his trick. With the city pass, he just right. just used it every single time. Didn't care about keeping it for important moments. He's just <laughs> like, well, I'm just going to do it until it runs out. And now it's run out. We now join tennis tragic AI correspondent Matt Black from the Arthur Ashe Players restroom for an exclusive interview. Steph, I was wondering if you could let your fans know how things are going in there. I, I don't watch other people's business. My parents have taught me not to watch other people's business. I understand, but perhaps the fans and other observers of the sport might be more sympathetic to your position if you just gave a little update. I think they, they came with not, without too much uh, struggle and effort and uh, feel fresh, comfortable, uh, loosened up a little bit. That's wonderful, so good to hear. How do you feel this break will improve your play on the court? It is important to, <laughs> first of all, you carry less weight on you. Uh, you feel you feel rejuvenated. You feel fresh, comfortable. What do you have to say to those who say that what you're doing in here is somehow disrespectful to the game and to your opponent? All these accusations have been completely false. I don't know why why everyone suddenly is against me when people are not really in the toilet and don't know what what is happening. <laughs> they just want to get it done quickly. I took my toilet break as a normal athlete, and I feel better.
I don't know if we're ready to get into line judges at, at just this moment, but I, I personally feel like this tournament benefited hugely from the automatic Hawkeye line calls because just there was no bullshit about that. I mean, maybe like Sabalenko is kind of complaining about some calls in the semifinal, but it was, you know, that at a certain point you just can't argue. It's a computer and the result is final and it just, it didn't feel like the action got derailed too much. Like, it just felt, I had the sense throughout that the level of play was super high. You know, all these long matches, like so much clean hitting, mm. um, so much energy from the crowd. It was like everything kind of clicking and, and it's not a guarantee, you know, like bad matches happen in tennis all the time, but um yeah, the overall quality was really striking. It, it felt like the you know the sport at its best in many ways, and I kind of think that the automatic line calling is part of it. Sorry, Matt. Oh no, I no, I see your point. Like, um, it kind of streamlines it a bit. Like, you're not gonna have a line umpire interrupting a point and then saying correction, and then you have to replay the point. For example, that's the thing. I guess like it's yep. a bit like the court is less cluttered maybe that has an effect we can't know for sure because i also think you know and another aspect of that is uh, of the line umpires is the drama uh, the choreography the um the social aspects the pageantry yeah there, there's some things that it gives but i i mean you wouldn't change this tournament would you at least nothing you you wouldn't risk going back in time and like tinkering with it because it might just <laughs> It might not be end up being as good, and it was very, very good. Yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head, I can think of all these famous incidents, you know, involving like, you know, a foot fault called against Serena in a tight moment, or Pablo Carreña Busta losing his mind after like a bad out call cost him a point deep in a tie break, and you know, it's like, and yeah, there is drama in those moments, and I love the drama in it, but it. It more often than not wasn't the toilet break and it was just the sport. And uh, yeah, I really, I, I think that was a part of it. Let's talk about the women's final. 18-year-old Emma Raducanu defeating 19-year-old Layla Fernandez in straight sets for her first Grand Slam title. I got more on board with Layla just because she's been more, I don't know, I just felt more drawn to her and more fun watching her play. But when I just looked back at the tournament and Raducanu winning the final, coming from qualities and not dropping a set. That's absurd. It's, it's yeah. insane what she just did there. I I think people are talking about it a lot, but it's still not, I feel like it's still not getting the weight that that deserves because that's absolutely insane. Yeah, I I completely agree. I don't know. The, 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 uh, the skeptic in me thinks she didn't play a top 10 player. I mean, you know, it just doesn't even matter. I, I also got on board with Layla to a degree where I really wanted her to win the final. And uh, I almost felt like Raducanu was like, you know, the pop song that was like super exciting at first and then got got kind of old. <laughs> she was just crushing everybody, you know? And like, I don't know, I don't, dominance can be kind of boring. Like I want to see the competitive matches. Fernandez had to battle through... I mean, there were like at least four three-set matches in a row, and she was beating, she beat three top five players. I mean, her run was ridiculous. Um, but yeah, like coming from qualifiers, 10-0, and 20-0 and 0 in sets, um, unbelievable. And, you know, and I was excited about her because she has attitude. She's expressive and joyful and 
there isn't much to dislike. I just want to see her in the fight. You know, I want to, I wanted to see Layla like really push her to that third set and, you know, challenge her, see what Rod yeah. is made of when she's, when she's up against it. But yeah, didn't get that in the end. Yeah. I also, I felt similarly to you guys. I like, I really love the story of Radicanu in the beginning and like, you know, it's, it's has the perfect ending. She's 18. She just does her A levels has a good yeah. Wimbledon as a wild card makes the fourth round, but then is overcome with nerves, panic attack. We're not really sure exactly, but she has a, a medical event and can't continue, but she like, um, against Tom Ranovich, but she, she really, uh, that steals her, that makes her, um, stronger for when she comes to the U S open gets into the qualies as the 31st seed in qualifying. It was her second qualifying match against bulk Vadze, where she won six, three, seven, five, seven, five in the second set. And that's the closest anyone came <laughs> to taking a set bulk Vadze in the Incredible. second of qualifiers. She, that she then wins against Sharif in the final round of qualifying and goes all the way to the final. But um, for me, Vatikanu kind of is a bit of a cyborg. Like I've, like I've read some, you know, William Gibson science fiction stuff where it's like in the future, like the, <laughs> the, you know, like the nation states are a bit more broken down. And you see that in Radicanu, she's Chinese Romanian born in Canada, lives in London. Love that. Very international. Like she's like some futuristic diplomat's daughter or, or something like a citizen of the world does everything like a cyborg, like horse riding ballet is perfect at everything, you know, <laughs> speaks really well. You know, she was asked something about Fernandez before the match. And she's like, I'm not thinking about Fernandez right now. I'm thinking about my game. You know, like she knows exactly she like her mental fortitude was so strong and her balance on the court. I think even like her outfit on the court is perfect. Like, it's the perfect composition, the red and blue Nike with, with a yellow cap and green shoes. Like she's covered all the primary colors. It was just so well balanced, but she's interested in finance. What interests you? If you weren't playing tennis, what would you use and apply your studies toward what? Um, I'm quite into finance, I'd say. And also because it's, I definitely want to stay into something competitive. Um, because I think I've got that competitiveness in me and um, yeah, wherever, whatever walk of life that is, I'm sure I'd find something because I really want to win. <laughs> <laughs> Have you visited Wall Street yet? Here Not yet, York? but I'm planning on, that's on my bucket list. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Like how yeah, boring can it's... you get? Like <laughs> your, interest, your main interest is fin finance? <laughs> I knew that was going to push you over the edge, Matt. <laughs> 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 well, here's a positive spin on it. One good thing is that the world has one less venture capitalist in it, I think. No, she's <laughs> going to be, she, they're already talking about she's going to be worth a billion dollars. Oh my God. Yeah. Like she's got a Nike poster um, in Times Square in New York. She's like, she, you know, wow. all these companies want to get on board. They're projecting she's going to be a billionaire. For me, one of the attractive parts of her story was the fact that she withdrew from the fourth round of Wimbledon with a panic attack. Like I, I'm pretty sure that was actually formally stated. And 
you know, and she acknowledged it and people gave her a lot of credit for like, you know, saying that's what happened. Like the moment got the best of me. Um, and it did have physical manifestation, but it was, it was just nerves. It wasn't something physically wrong. And so, you know, when she was coming through qualies, I remember you being like, oh, Raducanu's like, uh, gotten through qualifying. And I was like, yeah, sweet. Like just great to see her back out there. Yeah. We, we liked that. We were following her. We were like, we were interested. We didn't think she was going to make the final, but like, (laughs) not even, not a shot in hell. Yeah. Like I just thought like, ah, she's great. She could do a little damage, win a few rounds, like just, just, and just for her to follow up that terrible experience, like we're talking about mental health and, you know, she had a mental health episode very early in her career. And was still able to come through that. And so it's going to be interesting to see how she handles that pressure, like the the notion that people are already marking her to be a billion dollar asset is so gross. Yeah, it is gross, isn't it? But that's that's the world she's entering into. That is. And it's she's, gross. she's I, you know, it seems like she's entering it somewhat willingly, you know, with some degree of awareness, which is, I suppose, good, but. At the same time, it is just everything I hate about <laughs> capitalism is, you know, is that we all have a dollar value on us. Uh, how much money are we worth? How much money can we make for someone else, for ourselves, for, you know, to survive? Are we worth investing in? You know, we're talking about human beings here. Yeah. So it's disgusting. You know, and, and Radikanu is a very clear, clean cut kind of image for Nike, for, you know, potential investor. But Fernandez is the reason I, I, I went for her in the final in the end is because she was just, I don't know, more human somehow. Yeah, I feel you. Right. I, I do get, I, I think Raducanu, I can see the, the kind of cyborg-like aspect of her. That's, that's the pop song thing. It's like she was constructed in a lab and she's just perfect at everything. And she's like designed to appeal to everybody. Uh, but, you know, this is like the cynical snob deep in me that that is just like, I don't know, like I, I don't need to judge her. She's an 18-year-old girl who just won the U.S. Open. And I enjoy watching her play for the most part. Let's talk about Fernandez because the contrast was really interesting, not only in her, like the fact that she had to fight through these much tougher matches and just like her, her spirited attitude on court. And to me that I related her to Andrescu, you know, the last teenager to win a slam who was, you know, who's also Canadian. And like the thing I love most about Andrescu is just her willingness to like dig into the drama and like just it just seems like drama just emerges from her matches naturally. And that was totally what happened with Fernandez. But on top of that, Fernandez gave one of the most moving little speeches in her post-match interview that I can recall. And it showed a maturity and an awareness so far beyond her years. She took the mic after the questions had finished, she's like, I want to say one more oh, thing. One more thing. I know this, th- on this day, it was especially hard for New York and everyone around the, the United States. I just want to say that I hope I can be as strong and as resilient as New York has been the past 20 years.
Thank you for always having my back. Thank you for cheering for me. I love you, New York, and hope to see you next year. She addressed the crowd and spoke to the pain of New York, because this was on September 11th, the 20-year anniversary of the terrorist attack in 2001. And Fernandez just very succinctly addressed the, the city's pain and also the resilience, the, the recovery. And it was just this beautiful, thoughtful moment. And I, I was shocked to see that come out of a 19-year-old. And it just, yeah, it like sealed the deal for me with her, you know, yeah. uh, fan for life, hopefully. Uh, I think she's terrific. Yeah, it was the perfect thing to say that's going to endear her to the New York crowd forever. Yeah, that she was able to connect on a human level with other people's pain and suffering. As much as I think, you know, they're with the Twin Towers, there's so much focus on that aspect of September 11 and not nearly enough on the wars, the subsequent wars that many more thousands of people died um, afterwards. But notwithstanding that, she certainly showed her empathy. Um, And I think that comes from much more, it seems like she's had a much more difficult life that her parents her dad's from Ecuador, her mom's Filipina, and she, uh, they seems like maybe they were refugees and um, they, they thank Canada a lot for, for taking them in and she just had to struggle a lot more. It is the impression I get, I get without knowing, you know, just hearing snippets of Fernandez talk. Yeah. Just going back to Andreescu's Sakari, like the thing I really loved about that match is... The sadness of losing is what you need in tennis for it to be so compelling. You don't just have happy victories without the other side. That's what I love about it. And seeing the pain on Andreescu's face, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, one of those like movies like Braveheart or, you know, where like the Scots are outnumbered on the battlefield against the English, but so they keep fighting bravely anyway. They're like, they get a sword stuck in their shoulder and they rip it out and they're like bleeding to death. But with their last sword <laughs> strokes, they take down a few more English soldiers and we're like, ah, oh, Scotland. Um, <laughs> you know, like uh, that's, that's how, I, and it's beautiful because you're like, wow, so heroic. They were dying, but they still kept trying. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like, it sounds stupid, but that's what Andreescu was doing for me when she was, she had her leg injury and she just kept hitting winners. (laughs) She kept hitting winners and running for the ball and then she'd fall down and take progressively longer each time to get up. Yeah. But she made it very difficult for Sakari to serve out the match. She kept saving match points and stuff. Yeah, I, um, her fight is sort of unquestionable. It's, it's a shame, like, Obviously, the injuries have been such a big part of her career. I mean, she had that year when she won the U.S. Open, culminating in the victory at the U.S. Open, where it seemed like she didn't lose. You know, she had some ridiculous winning streak. And the only times she didn't win were when she had to withdraw. You know, that unfortunately has started to define her a little bit, and her level hasn't been so high. But, you know, somebody was showing stats during the Open, and 
She actually had a really good start to the year because she had that great run in Miami where she got hurt in the final against Barty, but won like every match in three sets in dramatic fashion and inspired a monologue from me. And, you know, and then she kind of had this walkabout where she was losing a lot and coming into the open, but the open, you know, she, she started with a really tough first round win and got on a roll and it all was there for her. And I think again, like the difference was in her body. I admire the fight. She got hurt and just kept playing. She would not let that determine the outcome of the match, but I think it, it ultimately did a little bit. I don't think there's really anything between those two players and you could basically flip a coin. When they played in Miami and that's in that tournament, they played as well and also played a three and a half hour match that ended at like 1.30 in the morning. Um, so I feel like it's right there for her, but she has to be able to get through a tournament without falling apart. And yeah, I hope she, I hope she could figure it out because she's just my absolute favorite and... It'd be nice nice to see that fighting spirit in epic battles with Fernandez and Osaka and Raducanu in the future. Yeah. One can hope. Yeah, I was looking forward to the Raducanu body matchup, but it didn't happen because Shelby Rogers beat Body. Right. Which was amazing. But um yep. some commentators theorized that Body probably would have been a more difficult challenge for Raducanu with her variety. Then Rogers with a more, and Rogers didn't play her best in that game against Raducanu either, but with a more predictable sort of baseline game. Um, and given that Raducanu is a more of a, a she's a, a newer player, hasn't uh, hasn't played at the top level for, for very long, that the trickiness and, and craftiness of, of Barty could have been interesting. So I'm, that's another matchup I'm looking forward to in the future. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and there's so many of them. One thing I noticed, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I feel like they did not call time violations ever. Did you guys notice time violations being called? No, I thought they were very, the umpires were very like, um, like Kajikova's match where she'd had to take the medical timeout against Mugarusa. Um, yeah. After that, you know, like she was moving very slowly and had to take the towel between points um, on Margarissa's serve. The umpire could have given her a warning just to be like, I thought this. I thought like, like obviously she's struggling with a medical issue and fair enough, give her some leeway. But you can also be like, I do have to give you a warning at some stage. I never really saw umpires giving warnings throughout the tournament for um, slow play. Yeah, the one thing, like, I, I kind of noticed that because at some point during commentary, Pam Shriver said something along the lines of, they're taking too long. Like, why aren't they, you know, like, that, that clearly should have been a violation. I would sometimes notice the serve clock getting paused or it would even go to zero and they just wouldn't make the call. And in that moment, I thought like, well, yeah, okay, like, sure, it is it is against the rules, but we're just keeping things moving. And we're not getting into these, like, petty arguments about, like, ah, oh, you started the clock too late, or... I don't know, I was an advocate for the clock originally, but I, I kind of think it doesn't help. And in matches where they are getting called, it just creates these weird conflicts that slow, it, slow things down more, you know? Like, yeah, it was good. The, the umps, the, the officiating was not the story. Uh, and I think that's that's to their credit as well. Like it was just everything was like really clean and professionally handled. And I thought it was great. Yeah, even the start of the the, the, the serve clock 
it was well managed. There was a few few matches with long rallies, and I really noticed them take a long time to call the score. To way after the crowd has started cheering, they took it like quite a while, and then slowly set the score, and then started the clock. I was like, all right, that's well managed. Do you remember the 53-stroke yeah. rally between Zverev and Djokovic? Yes. That was a fascinating game. I remember that rally distinctly because I was watching the the rally and then I, I needed to do something on my phone. <laughs> I did like a whole like task. I can't remember why I looked up and I was like, you're kidding me. The rally is still going. It's like, it was like a time warp or something. I've never seen a rally go for that long. No, I've never seen one like that. I remember seeing it at the time and I was like, I've never, I, I, as it was happening, I was thinking, holy shit, I've never seen a rally go this long. Yeah, and, and not only that, it wasn't like they were pushing it or just slicing oh, yeah. back and forth. Like, they were crushing the ball. Yeah, I mean, Zverev, to his credit, played an unbelievable match and tournament generally. Another reason to love Novak is that he averted the first age of darkness. Yes, thank you, Novak. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he was tough in that match. He just was not missing, and he was crushing the ball. And every once in a while, you'd see old Zverev where he was kind of backing up in the court and, like, you know, not really going for, like going for his shots. But most of the time, he was super aggressive and hitting through the court. Novak had to dig super deep. Really, I think the final, he just didn't have his legs, Novak. He just played too many four-set matches, five-set matches. and Yeah, and maybe mentally... He as well, like he, he'd exhausted himself because he's had such a big year, played so many matches, been to the last match at the other three Grand Slams, had an emotional Olympics where he played singles, doubles and mixed doubles in the heat, you know, and then he's got the whole time, he's got the weight of firstly the Golden Slam and then the Grand Slam on his shoulders. Will he do it? He only played one... He only got one straight sets victory in the whole US Open against Griegspor in the second round. But every other match, he's coming from a set down or one set all against Rune. But then against Nishikori, it's, he's a set down. Against Brooksby, he's a set down. Brooksby played amazing. Uh, against Berrettini, he's a set down. Against Zverev, he's a set down. And then these two sets all. And as we said, at the end of that third set, not only was that was that 50 odd shot rally but there were a lot of really really long rallies in that game in particular and he finally gets to, yeah. to the final and we we saw it at the change of ends and before the, before the last game he he was overcome with emotion and many people noted that he didn't seem to have the legs yeah the legs plus the the pressure of the moment combining i think it pretty much tells the story of that match. I mean, Medvedev was brilliant. He he completely earned it. The times that Novak was threatening to get back in it, Novak had a lot of break points. I think he had a love 40 to start the second set and couldn't convert. You know, it just, the moments where he would normally seize control of the match, like Medvedev raised his level and just made sure he had control of the, of the proceedings throughout. So... Um, given that he got crushed by Novak in Australia in the final, it was uh, it was an impressive turnaround from him. But uh, yeah, we'd like to see that match with a fresh Novak. But I, I think maybe to to your point, Matt, earlier where you were saying that like the story going in was, or that this was Alex's point, that, that the story going in was the the absence of Federer, Nadal, Serena, 
But I think as a result, you had all these amazing matches on the big stages. Whereas normally in the first week of a slam, you have like, oh, here's Rafa 636166Love against, you know, Jensen Brooksby. <laughs> like, um, I don't know if he would have beaten Brooksby that badly because Brooksby was yeah. awesome. The point is just that like, there you normally have all these blowouts on center court and on Ash. And it just wasn't present this time. It was, there was just a lot more competitive juice, even for the top players. Did you see Jack Sock play against Sasha Zverev? Yeah, I, I saw a bit of it. Um, I Unfortunately, I tuned in when he was already injured. Yeah, right. It, it, and the match was over, basically, at that point. But he, for a set, he looked like peak Federer. It was incredible. He didn't make any errors. His, he was serving beautifully, creative, amazing net play. It was like everything was clicking for Jack Sock in this moment. And then it all came crashing down. It was, it was both uplifting and, and like kind of tragic and heartbreaking at the same time. My, even my dad, my dad caught part of that match and he was like, this Jack Sock guy, he's, he, what, he was a top 10 player. What happened to, he was incredible. Like, you know, like he, he made this big impression and he's just been missing in action for so long uh, on the singles tour. You know, he was, he was in the top 10 and won a master's event and then just kind of fell apart. He's a great doubles player, which I know is uh, like, you know, it translates to a, a style of game that, that I tend to appreciate quite a bit. And his forehand is just ridiculous. Like his, his grip is completely like it's it's like way beyond western he just like basically holds it on top and has like the most wild aggressive whipping forehand with all this top spin and uh yeah he's he's he, i really did enjoy him for a long time and then i kind of soured on him um but that was really cool to see and i'm i'm hoping that he can get healthy again and and uh you know make a go of it and be a factor cuz uh yeah he's a fun player to watch however I might feel about him personally. Right. Um, it, is a, it is kind of strange the way he was good. He was, he was going to the Tour Finals, mixing it with Federer and Nadal and those guys. I remember in the Tour Finals, he, Federer had an easy play, a put-away ball, and Sock turned around and showed him his ass. <laughs> you know, right he's yeah. like right here federer you got me this but then federer dumped it into the net and then in the press conference like federer was asked about that and he was like oh his, his his ass was so big i was distracted yeah it's just one of those strange things like how a player can be really good and at the top and then he just he just dropped out of the top 100 like he just couldn't win a match yeah he like didn't win a match for a long time and then he needed a wild card to get into the, this tournament. He beat Bublik in the second round. Yeah, he got through to the third, took advantage. Yeah, he got through the third. Yeah, that was that was an epic epic five setter uh, against Bublik, which was a which was a big win for him. Bublik's a quality player. And I, I you know, also he was playing Sasha Zverev, so when he was like at at that weird peak, you know, where he was just channeling some otherworldly energy and of course that had a that had a lot to do with me getting behind him again. I was like, man, if Jack Sock takes out Sasha Zverev in the third round, that would be the best. But it didn't happen. Uh, but it was still entertaining. Yeah, speaking of Zverev, I've, um, a new, did you see a new article came out in the, the Washington Post? Oh, another one. No, I didn't see that one. It's not. There's nothing really new in that one, but 
it just kind of increases the pressure on the ATP to be like many sports, you know, many organizations, even the ATP itself has facility to deal with people who bring the game to disrepute or, or need to be reprimanded in certain ways. But when it comes to domestic abuse, when it comes to gendered violence, somehow we don't, we, we were like, oh, you know, oh, that's for the courts. That's for the courts to decide. Well, we're going to step away from that. And then just keep promoting Zverev on social media and, um, and pretending like it didn't happen. But it definitely, but, but yeah, like I, th- I feel like that's another article it's adding to the Rothenberg articles and the growing recogn- recognition that uh, the ATP needs a domestic violence policy. Yeah, I, watching the, the Djokovic match, I mean, he, he had a fair bit of crowd support and I, it made me wonder, like, how many people in the crowd are aware of this story? I mean, surely a, a significant portion of the people there are pretty serious tennis fans and, and have come across the allegations. Yeah, I don't think enough people know. For me, he's unrootable at this point. And and it is weird. Unroot for, I think you mean unroot forable. Unroot forable. He's definitely unrootable. What's the difference? Oh, well, maybe that's an Australian thing, but for root means to engage in sexual congress. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's an Aussie thing I, that I somehow didn't pick up in my years over there. Um, but okay, yes, he's unrootable and he's unrootforable. And it's it's like the allegations might get mentioned on the air, but for the most part, like when ESPN is doing its thing, they just talk about him as a tennis player and talk about his talent and his, you know, his struggle and his victories. And it does feel a little dissonant, but it, it's it, it really is tough because and this is one of the reasons why his misbehavior, his alleged misbehavior is so problematic for a sport like tennis He's an individual player. He's not on a team. He's an elite player, uh, top of the game. Will almost I believe now that he's going to win slams, whether I want him to or not. And it's like, what do you do? I mean, he. I think I think the domestic abuse allegations could have led to a suspension, and they probably should have, and they probably should have had an investigation. And I think there are ways to handle it that would at least show the requisite amount of seriousness. But instead, if he's out there, you know, nobody wants to tune into ESPN and hear them just talk about how terrible of a person he is. It's like, it's again, like people are tuning in for other reasons. And at some point you're just like, well, he's on the court, he's playing a match. Like you have to give it to him. He played very well and showed a lot. And there's other stuff to talk about there, but fuck it's disappointing and you know just shows like one person one bad actor you know one elite athlete who cheats or is violent or you know any of that it just it's so damaging to the sport in a way that other sports maybe can are better equipped to deal with i think uh yeah i mean that's why you know if you if you do deal with things publicly you know, it doesn't matter what the courts say. If you deal with these and like send a strong message and then also have an internal process that can reprimand and suspend and exclude players that treat women this way or treat people this way and hold them to account somehow. Yeah. You don't damn it. Like, you know, like you, you move forward and it's not this stain that's constantly there. And you're right. You can't just be constantly talking about it i mean it's sport i mean sporting commentators aren't really equipped to make an ongoing political commentary 
match after match at a certain point you just you, you probably give up or you're not sure how to deal with it i mean if the game's not dealing with it what do we really do but it is such yeah. a it's such an issue gendered violence um sexism misogyny it's like it's a real thing in the world like it's a serious problem that we have and here so here's actually an opportunity Zverev's yeah. not the only example there's also Bashalashvili and probably heaps of stuff we don't mm. we don't know about right so yeah deal with it like it's that it's that yeah it's that thing like it's, we live in the world like the tennis world isn't separate from the rest of the world it's of course the same problems in the in the real world are going to be in the tennis world as well as much as tennis can be that escape and the fantasy and and offer us all these opportunities to to enjoy something that is play at its at its core it does overlap with the real world and it's a lens for for looking at this stuff in a way i do think there's like a missed opportunity on behalf of the press and the atp to to call attention to it and express how not okay it is even you know i mean the whole thing is you have to you do have to qualify that it is allegations nobody really knows what happened in private but even still there is a way to address that and say under no circumstances is this kind of is the abuse being described by his ex-partner acceptable and also like create some consequences for that and then move on but i i just don't think it's possible to move on without any kind of reprimand or or proper addressing of the issue and this is just one of those ways tennis politically seems a little bit behind the times i i do think we need to talk about naomi osaka i don't know need is a strong word in in some ways i almost feel like maybe people could talk about it less because it seems like all the attention is part of what has led to her you know feeling this way like get, you know landing in this anxious and depressed place and um you know, and mm. I, I do really feel for her, but it was striking. Maybe, uh, Matt, you want to tell the story of uh, her third round match and kind of what happened afterwards? Sure. Um, so she was a set all with Fernandez. I think she won the first set and she was up a break in the second set. So she looked to be, I was listening to the tennis podcast episode and they were sure she was going to win. Um, and I think they completed the podcast before the result was known, thinking that she was going to win, but she ended up um, losing to Fernandez. And we can see why Fernandez was such a big challenge because she went all the way to the final after that. But um, Naomi was not happy on court. Her concentration was bad. She was hitting a racket. She got called for ball abuse. She like, she hit a ball into the crowd. Yeah, stuff was not right with her. And at the end of the match when she lost to Fernandez, you know, she she's gracious with Fernandez. I actually thought, like, remember when um, at the Australian Open, Osaka beat Coco Goff and, like, everyone was rooting for Coco Goff or everyone was interested in Coco Goff so much and Coco Goff was kind of crying at the end and, and Osaka was like, you know what, we're going to do the on-court interview together because everyone's right. here for you as well. And it was a really nice moment of like, it doesn't matter whether we, whether we win or lose, we're in this together and, you know, let's share the moment, which was so touching from Naomi. I actually thought 
Layla Fernandez is not going to do that because she doesn't, she hasn't been on the big stage. She hasn't won these kinds of matches and she's much younger than Osaka. She's, she doesn't have the authority to like kind of take Osaka under her wing. That would be ridiculous. But I almost felt like Naomi in that moment needed someone to be like, Naomi, it's okay. You just want, lost a match and it's not the end of the world. But um, in a press conference, she was like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I feel sad when I lose matches. I, I And I only feel relief when I win matches. I don't even feel happy when I win. Um, and that's not normal. So I'm going to take a break. And she could have stopped the interview at any time. Like, one of her assistants were like, we can, we'll, we'll stop the interview. But Naomi was like, no, I got to say this. Something, something's not right here. And I need to let, let you know what's going on which was courageous from Naomi, but also, yeah, just points to all the tension and pressure, all the, all the attention on her is getting to her somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to know exactly what's going on with her emotional state, but as somebody who's experienced really severe depression, it's quite clear she's not healthy right now, and she needs to take that break. I think that's the right thing to do. It's okay that she takes the break. She doesn't have to play tennis anymore if she doesn't want to. You know, and I I, I often do feel critical of her and some of the stances like, you know, the, the the antagonistic stance with the press room. I just don't think it's it's particularly productive and it just it creates more, you know, it's generating more conflict. And, you know, when she was just trying to take space for herself before the French it it backfired because it create you know it, it started up that media shitstorm and that's exactly what she didn't want was all that attention and all the the focus on how she's doing and whether or not it's appropriate how she's behaving and all this stuff i don't know and i i also can't help but think like there's a lot of players on tour who don't always show real joy in doing what they're doing and she was beaten by somebody, Leila Fernandez, who, you know, I, I had seen her play before, but kind of bounced off it, like bounced off her play. I remember going to see her at the Australian Open. She's been hyped for a while yeah. and just not really, you know, not spending enough time with it probably, but, you know, it's some side court, some lower ranked player. I don't think her results were all that good. But in that moment, something changed with Fernandez where... First of all, like you could see her her joy, like this effervescent excitement and tangible pleasure in the play, you know, in and you know, in the in the competition, in in the winning and the back and forth. And, you know, one of my favorite moments was when she was beating Sabalenka and Sabalenka, you know, won an amazing point and asked the crowd for love by swinging her airs up, hands up in the air. And then Layla wins the next point and like just imitates Sabalenka's ask for attention to kind of like kind of take you know outdoing her and it's just there was just like a fun to the experience of watching her play and similar with Raducanu where you just like get this scent you know people talk a lot about smiling which is always a little weird when you know the focus seems to be on that for more for women but I, I mean that was true of Francis Tiafo as well it's like you know, y'all, when you play like it is a game and it's fun to play, it's just infectious. It brings people in. And so I did think part of the Naomi story was that she's just so far from enjoying what she's doing. It's become a job 
that she doesn't like. Mm. And that doesn't mean she won't ever enjoy it again. Um, but the difference there was really stark to me. And, uh, you know, it felt good that you had so many people expressing themselves positively, but her, you know, her whole demeanor and her, her mental state is so negative right now. It, it felt like a good shift. And I don't mean that like, you know, it's good that it happened at Osaka's expense, but just, I don't know, the contrast was really noticeable to me. Yeah. I mean, the self-awareness from Osaka is good though. And I like the joy is great um, from Fernandez, but like, I have a theory that Osaka is onto something in that she's tapping into like a reality of work. Even if you're a tennis player doing something you love, it's, it's a job. It's going to get you down. And perhaps, you know, like the Marxist in me thinks that there's an inherent exploitative relationship. It's, it's, tricky to make like players earn a lot of money uh, millions of dollars like to see them as the proletariat but you know inherent in capitalism are these relations where the worker is exploited for the needs of the the firm the business the capitalist system and you know with tennis players as well they've they've got sponsorship commitments Naomi Osaka is someone who who's looking at the world she's involved in Black Lives Matter She's dealing with like understanding inherent inequalities and racism and, you know, all this stuff that's going on in the world. I, and then she's asked to play a game, a game and the stakes are so high for her sponsors, you know, for her career, for the press. And I think it's quite a perhaps appropriate reaction to question what it all means and like to not be able to take the joy from, you know, given all, given all of those parameters to not be able to to only feel relief when you win and and to and to question what it all means. Mm. But of course, you know, it is refreshing to to see Leila Fernandez just having a ball and smiling and that is lovely. But I would say it's not just ne- necessarily a problem of Osaka's like internal problem, but maybe it it's a problem that exists out, out in the world that she's tapping into somehow, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I kind of think it can be both. Osaka strikes me as a person who feels a little too much for what's going on around her. And it like doesn't, it seems like she's lacking the, the, the tools, the skills to just tune out the stuff that's hurting her. And, you know, that's, that's not a, that's not a slight. It's just, you know, some people do, they, they, they become overwhelmed by the, you know, what is the, what this all means? And, you know, like, how is it fair that I'm getting paid millions of dollars to do all this nonsense, you know, to, to hit a ball? And, you know, and there's all this horrible stuff going on in the world at all times. I don't know. I, I think for a lot of people, sports is escapism, you know, like sports is a way to take a break. You know, I remember when like when Colin Kaepernick first took the knee in the US and was getting all this heat for it. And people are just like angrily being like, keep your politics out of the sport. I just want, I just want a fucking break, you know? And I, I sort of, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for that position because I thought he was doing something that really desperately needed to be done. And he was willing to take the heat. I think what he did was kind of heroic uh, and courageous. And he lost his career as a result of it. And it was the beginning of this sweeping change in our society. You know, I can also see, you know, like we're, we're human beings, like, like to live a fulfilling life, 
sometimes we have to be able to like shut it out, you know, and, and sports are kind of an avenue for that. For, for me anyway, I, I feel that way. You know, I, I do want to get wrapped up in these storylines and personalities and all the drama because it doesn't it doesn't really matter you know and if at the end of the day i'm pissed off because Pass lost i was so upset <laughs> and you know i'm like storming around the grounds and i'm just frustrated and then like we went and like got like a front row seat for the on stupor match uh that i was sending you pictures from matt and it was like this is just this is all play you know i was able to like find it again and yeah, I don't know. The system is crushing her a bit. And I, I I suspect that a lot of her endorsement commitments, product commitments, those relationships and what they what they demand, you know, like the, the contractual obligations, the fact that she has to be a salesperson for all this stuff all the time when she's not playing tennis. It's like, where's the room for her to just be a human being? And I hope she finds it. I hope she takes exactly as much time as she needs and finds a way to be healthy. I mean, that's that's what I wish for anybody, really. Yeah, we might not see her at the Australian Open in 2022. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Ash, Ash Barty took two years off because she wasn't able to deal with it, you know, and wasn't ready for the tour, had the self-awareness to know that that was the break she needed. She needed to stay home, do something else for a while. Yeah, um, I I think the breaks is probably in order. I just think she probably should become an anti-capitalist as well because like that would help her understand relations. Like, what where does racism come from in the first place? Like, because imagine not having having the tools to unpack the world, and then like you're just like, why are people so fucked all the time? Why do these killings keep happening? And like somehow like whether it's an anti-capitalist point of view or some kind of anchoring politics or or way of being to to help yourself navigate through the world and maybe maybe that's what everyone needs but something that's going to center her and give her a reason to whatever she does play tennis or not um i think that's what we all need somehow make making sense of the world i don't think the world makes sense to naomi like it's a really volatile world and and i think like tennis like the tennis tournament is just like it tries to be this oasis but it can't like it's it's got to be a microcosm it's got to like the world comes into the tennis tournament as well yeah i i just think zooming out a little bit you know one of our takeaways right right to the very end i think after the semifinals even it was like you you said to me this is this is what we've been waiting for like it just the change these new players arriving on the scene, bringing this kind of energy and excitement and positivity. And the women's game just seems so open. Like the number of first time Grand Slam champions in the last, you know, few years is pretty crazy. And it just feels like there's just going to be all these great players with different styles fighting it out for the years to come. And I, I mean, like, I'd be perfectly happy to see Raducanu win more slams and and be a great player and turn into number one. But at the same time, I just I don't I don't want her to turn into a dominant force. Like unless there's somebody else right there with her. Like I just I, I just want to see more of that. Like more of that competition. More of these young players and like almost everybody who's really in the mix right now on the women's side is. 25 or younger. It's such a contrast to the men. I think like team and Medvedev might be the youngest and they're, you know, Medvedev's 25, teams maybe a little bit older. It's just, uh, 
yeah, the, the, the big three just had such a stranglehold for so long. And as much as I appreciate everything that they've done for the game and the excitement they've brought, it's like, yeah, I, I'm ready, ready for the change. Before we go, I think uh, perhaps we should take a look back at the 2019 season and reflect on some of Daniil's greatest moments as a tennis player and entertainer. Well, Daniil, quite an evening, quite an atmosphere in here. You're through to the next round. Talk to us about your emotions and how you're feeling. Well, uh, first of all, what I can say that thank you all, guys, because your energy tonight give me the win. Because if you were not here, guys, I would probably lose the match because I was so tired. I was cramping yesterday. It was so tough for me to play. So I want all of you to know when you sleep tonight, I won because of you. One way or another, Daniil, you've fed off this atmosphere. You're through to the fourth round, uh, putting together a good year after a victory in Cincinnati. And actually, your best Grand Slam tour to date since, obviously, the Australian Open. You're doing well out here. Yeah, but uh, again, the only thing I can say that the energy you're giving me right now, guys, I think it will be enough for my five next matches. I mean, the more you do this, the more I will win for you guys. Thank you. Smart player. Um, what's his coach's name? Um, the, the, who's the ex-player? Jill Savara. Jill Savara. Yeah, um, he said that he calls Medvedev a genius. Oh, yeah, right. Wow. That's no small praise. I mean, when you hear Medvedev speak, you get a pretty clear impression that he's a very bright kid. But I remember, you know, he lost that final in Canada to Rafa where he just got drubbed. And I remember the, commenta the commentators kind of saying, like, he really needs to adapt and he's failing to do that. And that's kind of the difference between the top three guys and everybody else, like their ability to like in, in match, you know, adapt their tactics to what's actually happening, uh, no matter what the expectation was. And it was like Medvedev was just, he was just trying to return Rafa's serve from 10 feet behind the baseline, first and second serve, like not really mixing it up in any noticeable way. But then when he played Novak in the semis in Cincinnati, all of a sudden you could see that thinking bulb go on over his head. Like at some point in that match, he was like totally running on fumes and he started going for super huge second serves. Like he basically was just serving first serves as second serves. Yeah. And he kind of he kind of cheesed his way through that match. Like that's that strategy, it, it almost seems like like it's like you're not supposed to do that. You know, it's too risky. You know, if you start throwing in doubles, you're just gonna hand a game to your opponent. But he felt like if I just throw in these, you know, these soft, you know, 100 mile per hour second serves, Novak's going to win every point. And so he adapted his strategy and found a way to win this match improbably against Novak, who was very much in form. And uh, here he is in the US Open semis. He's my pick. Yeah, wow. Even over Rafa? Yeah, I reckon this time he's going to come and he's going to problem solve, problem solve Rafa in the final and win it. 15 all. I think what we don't talk enough about with Daniel Medvedev is something that Gilles Savara, his coach, has been uh, speaking about a lot last year. How he says he's got a very big and complex mind, but he's able to process a lot of information quickly, almost like a computer. 
That'd be <laughs> such a great story. Because the other thing, and we've been talking about his game, but the other thing is his is his relationship with the crowd. You know, the, he's, he's been copying a lot of booze, and you know, it seems like people love to hate him. But he's he seems to thrive on that energy, and uh, I've noticed a bit of a change now. Now he's now he's been acknowledging the crowd, saying. Hey, keep doing me. I like it. Um, you give me energy, and I'm just going to be my own person. And in that quarterfinal, I feel like at the end, the crowd were like kind of on his side. Yeah, I think he's won them over. I think in a few things he's done, you know, he's been he was pretty good after in that um, post-match interview after Varenka, and also in one of the press conferences recently. Might have been after that one. He he said, "Look, I, you know, I did some stupid things in that in that first match where all the booing started." And he's like, "I'm trying to be better at that." But uh, off the court, I think the I'm. A, that's right. He snatched the towel off a ball boy, and then the crowd started booing him, and then it started from that. So, you know, it was it wasn't a good thing for him to do that. But the whole crowd booing you for that made him do the finger gesture after that, and then it was just reacting to each other from there. So. But um, but I think now he's you know he's expressed that he's like you the know, finger feels... was so funny. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> the finger, the finger. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but that was fucking classic, man. I, I I have been replaying that moment for my friends when I try to describe how how joyful the Medvedev Feliciano Lopez match was to me. Such a good <laughs> like, match. He like. He extends, yeah, and it just, it totally, we were texting during that, and it just flipped, like, energy-wise, it, it, like, engaged on another level. As soon as Medvedev started playing against the crowd, like, he, he makes a middle finger gesture with his hand, and he puts it up against the side of his head, like, as if to hide it, I guess, from the, from the umpire, and I think that was directed towards the crowd, so he yeah. just, at that moment, he embraced it, and then Feliciano, to his credit, is just such a, he's such a game competitor, he's like, I want to beat the crap out of this kid right now. So they they went toe to toe for that match, and yeah, it was really high level, high, high level stuff. The uh, the point that Medvedev won to secure the third set tiebreak was incredibly memorable uh, to me. He was like falling backwards, out of bounds, and Feliciano hits this amazing drop shot. You don't think there's any chance that Medvedev's going to get to it, and he somehow like changes direction dashes towards the net like a gazelle and like dinks this little half lob over Feliciano's head that probably Feliciano should have had. He thought he had maybe won the point already and then wins the set and the crowd just loses it because they are not on Medvedev's side. No. So uh, yeah, just had this energy that is missing a lot in tennis and I think like helps bring you know, non-tennis fans into the fold, right? It's like, it's like, oh, these, these guys care and it's like, it's edgy now. Like it's personal it's not it's not just like a you know two professionals going about their business like they yeah, awesome. they want to kill each other and, and it's like the theater like <laughs> what i love about it is i think david you were talking about it being like a wrestling match you know where you have the the wrestling yeah. villain playing up to the crowd that's what's great about someone like Medvedev who can bring that theatricality and that involving the audience and it's not just a game of sports where the players super focused on their own performance but they also care about the energy about the crowd and um, their own personality shines through and everyone you know it just makes the game so much more enjoyable yeah and I think this is like it's really interesting like how Medvedev has has embraced it I mean Medvedev has exhibited some kind of shitty behavior in the past and you know snatching a towel away from a ball kid isn't exactly a way to ingratiate yourself to 
to strangers, but he, he embraces that role. Like at some point he's just like, all right, give it to me. And his post-match celebration, I think was like a minor crossover sports news story, right? Cause he just, he's like got his arms extended and he's like bringing <laughs> yeah. the booze down. And he's like basically taunting the crowd in the post-match interview. I mean, you and never see that in came, bro- I reckon the crowd loved booing him at that point. They were like, okay, that's our cue to keep booing you. That's what, this is the relationship yeah, we set up. absolutely. Okay, Daniil, we're going to do a focus exercise now. I want you to start by taking some deep breaths. Settle into the space around you. Notice the sounds, your body on the chair, points of contact. Close your eyes. Watch your breath as it goes in and out of your body. Don't try to control the breath, just let it be. Let your attention rest there. Now I want you to visualize yourself on the tennis court. I want you to visualize your perfect form. See yourself swinging through the ball, nice and easy. Perfect forehand, clean and flat. See the ball going exactly where you want it to go, every time. See the ball coming back to you. Feel the grip of the racket in your hand. another forehand, nice and easy now. Hear the sound of the strings as you strike the ball. See the ball again in your mind. Wherever the ball bounces, you are there. Hit another forehand, Daniil, clean and flat. Everything is in play for you. See the trophy in your hands. Imagine yourself lying down on the court in victory. The confetti raining down from above. The Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com and our Instagram is at tennistragicpod.